It's almost like they set you up to fail. Uh, welcome to the Rex Crim Show. Hi, Rex. Thank you for having me. I uh, I think we should. I should clarify. You know, Rex is the pseudonym that I go right, by. Right. It's Mike. Well, you can call Mike. me Rex. You can call me Mike. Just don't call me late for supper. <laughs> so I uh, I like to begin um, by giving a bit of context uh, in how we 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 know each other or don't know each other. How is it that we came to meet? On Reddit, you asked for anyone interested in doing a podcast that had done um, some time in the criminal justice system, and I have a story that I have just been waiting to tell, and um, it felt right. This is the opportunity for you to go public, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. So for um, the little bit of correspondence we had back and forth, I understand you spent uh, about two years inside, I think, in a county jail uh, based on a, a drug conspiracy charge. Um, yes, I spent you, yeah. um, nine months in the county jail. And then I think between like nine and 12 in um, an actual women's prison. Mm-hmm. Immediately, I, I, I'm always, um, you know, taken back by the expectations of guests when I solicit on Reddit, you know, I think um, ex-convict, uh, I'm not usually thinking of, of women. And so right. there's sort of a gender uh, double standard or bias here. And so I, I'm delighted to have uh, some inside perspective, pun intended. <laughs> yeah. So um, tell, tell us, if you're willing, about the, the charge, or why don't we start, um, you know, how it is that you came to encounter the justice system? Yes, yes. So um, I um, am adopted from birth, and I was raised by a freaking picture-perfect family. Um, honestly, like, there's nothing that they, that they did wrong. There's nothing that they could have really done better. And um, I got in a car accident when I was 18. And then by the time I was in my mid-20s, I was being prescribed um, fentanyl. Mm-hmm. And so I had a lot of health issues and was just prescribed really heavy narcotics. And then I became like physically addicted to them. And then my mm-hmm. father unexpectedly passed away. And so then it turned into like a mental addiction. And then that turned into talking to someone about a prescription I'm on and finding out how much money I could get for that and kind of turned into a life of crime. Right. And, uh, but that's, I don't think you're, you're in the game, so to speak, uh, these days you're, you've taken some steps to turn it around. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Totally out of the game. Um, completed, Almost four years of probation and been off it for a couple of years. But. Wow. Yeah. So nope. I'm trying to get a, t- a sense of time. So um, nine months in a county jail and then some further time uh, actually sentenced in a federal uh, or not a federal necessary. I don't think you said, but in a women's yeah, no, institution. Yeah, no, just a state. Um, and I don't mind saying this state is uh, Indiana. But um, yeah, I, uh, well, I was arrested. And what happened was I had been using money from 
the, cause I just dealt with opiates and that's what I was addicted to. Mm-hmm. But, um, I would invest in people that sold other things. And so I had, um, given someone a substantial amount of money, um, for them to buy some drugs and to sell them. And, um, they, I ended up like not being with them. I was with someone else, but I had their backpack with me. And so because of that, um, the person I was with and I got conspiracy, um, to deal charges. And, um, I was originally charged with a level a felony, which is the highest, but that was back in uh, 2014. And I got out in March of 2016. That was a long uh, way to answer that question. No, that's 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 good. That's what we're here for, for that in-depth um, sort of emphatic appreciation of actual crime as opposed to true crime. Maybe we'll yeah. talk more, more about that uh, uh, in a little bit. I am trying to get a sense of uh, well, I think there's something to be said about drugs. You know, there's a there's a real issue about the consequences of of the war on drugs. Um, and you're describing your experience. You know, starting out with a legitimate pain and a prescription, leading to leading to a, an underground market. Um, yes. Can you yeah. share a little bit more about the you know the 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 details of the case? I guess double jeopardy isn't uh, of concern here on account of <laughs> yeah. the fact that you've already served your time. Yes. Yeah. Well, um, I was originally charged with a class A felony um, for conspiracy to deal methamphetamine, which us opiate addicts kind of judged methamphetamine like a lot more like it somehow that was so much worse so like that was really just ironic to me but then um a class d uh conspiracy to deal for marijuana and for synthetic marijuana and so upon my arrest i was looking at 20 to 40 years with the case so I wonder, was there a, a, some sort of plea deal uh, negotiation that took place? Yes, yes, yeah. Um, I had stipulations that I would only plead. Well, first of all, um, before like the case even got too far, they dropped the A down to a B. So <laughs> that made the consequences not quite as... Concerning? Um, yeah, still scary, but but not quite as bad. But eventually, um, I ended up pleading to uh, serve four years. I think the the total sentence was eight years, but I only had to serve two of them inside. And then since I completed my probation, I didn't have to serve, I think, two. So probation has ended for you officially? Oh, yes. Yes, for a couple of years. And that would have been as of 2016 was the last day of the sentence? Or was yes. 2016 the last mm-hmm. part of the custodial sentence and then probation? Yes. Yeah. It switched in March from custodial to probation. Right. Okay. Well, yeah, I, 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 please go on. Um, well, like I just want to say this whole experience has really just been, been so incredible because growing up, I, I had a lot of like depression and anxiety and just mental health issues. And I always, I didn't feel like I was that blessed or Mm -hmm. that I was really that, I don't know, like my life was that good. But now that I 
um, have like stepped back and seen it from the other side. Um, it's just mind blowing because I have friends that are in prison now who would not be in prison if they had the family support that I have. And it's really, um, almost infuriating watching this. Like it could be because if I didn't have, um, a mom who could pay for an attorney, I might still have been on that eight charge and could would still be in prison or out using and probably dead. So um, the amount of money and the family that you come from just plays into it a lot, and it's not right. You're 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 describing this sort of irony that is. Uh, you know, the underground market of the drug game, which is its own economy, while at the same time, you know, the criminal justice system seems to operate based on classism. So yes. if you have the money to afford good attorneys who get paid to represent you in court, et cetera, your, your bargaining power seems to be a little bit stronger than those who don't have um, th- those resources. Yeah. It, um, oh goodness. There's just so much. My mind's, um, kind of speeding Reason. all over the place. <laughs> I'm, g- I'm going to keep you on track. So you feel welcome to just share anecdotes as they come. Um, you know, if there's any pressing thing, you feel welcome to interrupt me. Okay. I wonder if you can, maybe we'll go back to the subreddit for a second. Uh, I think it's appropriate to say what, what, where we met, uh, what is it called? The subreddit? Oh my goodness. Honestly, how can, um, <laughs> to look on my phone. I it's, um, you no, know, it's okay. It's, it's, uh, I'll j- criminal justice thing, prison. Something. Yeah. It's an, I think it's an ex con yeah. something like that. R slash ex con. Yeah. Yeah. So I, that's what I'm wondering, uh, is, you know, what you're doing on there. What is, what, what does that uh, do for you? Why, why do you spend time looking through that? Well, I had, um, made a post there, uh, or I might have just been, um, I might just like watch posts, but I had posted at one point on Reddit about my experience in the County jail. And, um, for some reason it's not available anymore, but, um, that might be why, uh, during the beginning of coronavirus, um, I had so many friends who were just in the most insane, unfair conditions. Like I have, um, I had a friend at all three facilities here in, uh, Indiana, all three women's ones. And so I was following a lot of, uh, the coronavirus stuff in the Reddit. From right. People. And are you actively, uh, involved, you know, giving advice or, uh, or are you just one of these people who tend to lurk? Um, I am just, except for when you see a, a, an invitation, a solicitation to get on a podcast, then you like to jump, jump at the opportunity. Yeah. 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 And we're grateful for it. So I, I want to ask about, you know, experience, if you can remember and put yourself, um, back to the moment that, that you were in trouble, you know, do you remember, walk us through what it was like the moment that the, was it, who was, you know, someone knocking down your door or was it being pulled over? Uh, shed a bit of light on that. Yeah. Well, um, I was with a friend in front of another friend's house. Um, and I think I was sitting in that friend's vehicle. Um, when the, I'm not sure, why the police i think someone might have called them and i'm not, i'm not i don't know 
it's some weirdness that I don't think had anything to do with me. I think it might have been the person I was with. But um, they knocked on the door to the car, and I got out. And then they ended up searching the car with the dogs, and the dogs hit on the backpack. And, of course, I was like, no, I don't know anything. I have no idea what that is. I don't I don't even know my name. <laughs> but um, I actually don't uh, vividly remember it um, because I was really high. <laughs> and... Um, so yeah, but it was it was terrifying. Um, and what I do remember is um, when I when I got to the county jail, they ask you a whole bunch of questions and like, do you plan on harming yourself? Like those kind of questions they ask often nowadays, even at hospitals and stuff. But um, one of the questions, I can't remember the exact words, but it was something of more along the lines of like, are you happy with where you're at in life? (laughs) Like, I was um, a substitute teacher at the time of this arrest. So um, no, I was not happy. (laughs) And, And that's what I said. And so because I said that all of my clothing was taken away from me, and I was given a turtle suit and put in a cell. Share what uh, turtle suit is for anyone that doesn't know. It is like a smock that only stays on by Velcro. And it's kind of like a heavy material. Ours were green. I'm not sure if they're always green. But it's not a whole lot of material. Like it covers your chest. It's sleeveless. But it covers from about your chest to your knees, and that's it. So you're in a car with your friend. The the you know you realize there's some trouble, but you're not maybe all that lucid because you're under the influence yourself. Yes. Um, is it fair to say you, you know? I t- sometimes you talk to uh, well, you hear about these stories of people who are in the drug game, and you know they say they never use their own supply. Um, but in your case, it sounds like the opposite is true. You were sort of, you had your own supply and, and you decided to start using that to, as leverage to, to market. Yeah. Well, I was prescribed, um, oh, okay. Okay. Opana. Mm-hmm. And, um, that's kind of how I got into using it heavier. I was getting, um, a tattoo one night by a friend um, who was actually a very, very close, like a brother that I grew up with, good friend, a kid who's friends of the family mm-hmm. kid. But um, we had seen each other for the first time since high school and we're talking and catching up. And um, like I said, I was a substitute teacher, so I wasn't um, making very much money. And I found out that one pill I could sell for between 110 to 130 dollars right and so with that like if i wasn't already under the influence and like already um pretty like mentally and physically addicted at that point like it's something now like i would never god never ever do but um i used um, my medicine and then made money from mine and then used the money that I made to invest in other people. So I didn't use um, really anyone's supply but mine. 
I'm not sure if I follow you. Help me understand what you mean by using the money to help other people. Um, yeah, sorry. No, not to necessarily. It didn't help anybody. But um, like say like I had I had $2,000 and I would give that $2,000 um, to um, someone who actually sold like all kinds of stuff and was a lot more active because with opiates, there's the, there was this whole scene of these, um, you know, kids out of high school in their mid twenties who are, um, not necessarily like deep in criminal lifestyles, but just like opiate addicts. And so I like, I don't know, kind of stayed away, uh, from the trap houses, I guess. And, and that kind of, uh, dealing, but the people that did that kind of dealing, I saw an opportunity to make money. And so, um, I, on, I, I'm pretty sure when I got arrested is the, I, I don't know. I had loaned people money and then they would pay me back. But I think that's the first time I'd ever given anyone a substantial amount of money, um, for them to go buy this stuff and then sell this stuff and then return to me with the money. Would you describe this as sort of a, a glamorous lifestyle? I, I wonder, having firsthand experience yourself, I'm thinking of Netflix TV shows and this sort of draw, uh, huge appetite for true crime these days. Uh, how do you how do you reconcile your actual experience um, with the justice system and the way that it's sort of depicted on TV? A lot of it, um, shows like Orange is the New Black, I thought seemed um, kind of accurate. Um, I think it's good that, like, I don't know, addiction and and those kind of issues are kind of being addressed uh, more publicly because people really think that um, especially especially if you're like in the upper echelon of like society that like addiction is something that can't happen to you or your family and it only happens to you know like minorities who are living in poverty but that's not true it can happen um, you know to literally everyone um, but as to the glamour of the life I was living um, I mean there were definitely moments we uh like would stay at like uh, a suite at a nice hotel um, for a couple weeks while um, we would sell the expensive um, pills. I've never, I haven't talked about this, but the statute of limitations on that is gone. Are, so, do you know if it? Do you know yeah. if it's passed yet? Yeah, okay, yeah, you've done yeah, your it's research. Passed. <laughs> yeah. Okay, good. So feel welcome to. I mean, everybody's keen on uh, on hearing all about it. So. Um, feel welcome to give us the nitty gritty uh, of what uh, people might want to do to avoid getting caught or, uh, or what to avoid in the first place. Yeah, well, we, um, most of the selling that me and um, my uh, friend that I talked about earlier who kind of introduced me, um, we're going to call him Nick. And he and I were like a team together 24 hours a day and not Oddly enough, uh, well, like I had said earlier, we grew up together and like took baths together. And so he was, I just saw him as a brother and he just saw me as a sister. So we didn't have any uh, of the like romance bullshit in there. Um, but so you don't, you don't like to mix business and pleasure. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. Actually, interestingly enough, um, 
looking back, when I was heavy in my addiction, I actually stayed away from um, getting in like a major relationship. I think I was already just so much. I couldn't, I don't know, meet someone and then, I don't know, have them like find out I was using heavy narcotics and that kind of stuff. So it, it sounds like your, your, um, your romance was with the addiction in itself. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, it was, it was my everything. Yeah. And, and now I don't want to interrupt you, but to, to be clear, it sounds like now you're in recovery. Yes. Yes. Very much so. Yeah. I, um, I vape and, uh, I am a big fan of the CBD, but, um, otherwise, uh, on, uh, no, uh, opiates or pain medicine at all. I'm uh, in Toronto and we've legalized cannabis here in Canada. Um, but in Indiana, what is the status of cannabis? Um... Unfortunately, it is still illegal. And we have Eli Lilly here. And um, I know they have uh, at least one a pharmaceutical that has THC in it. And so I feel like that's partially why they don't want it here. Right. So does that... I'm a bit confused because on a federal level, I think it's still not uh, legal in the U.S., but on the state level, often there's more leniency. Am I to understand THC is not allowed, but CBD is sort of accepted in Indiana? Yes, yeah. CBD has um, become really popular in the last several years, and it's, it's still legal. I'm not sure. I don't think it's ever been illegal because I don't think they knew about it. Like it's still, it, it seems to be, well, I think the, there's a real push for decriminalization in general, and you're probably seeing yes. a great deal of, uh, latitude. Um, I know when I visited in the States, there are oftentimes, you know, CBD signs and, uh, you can just walk in to storefronts and buy it. Is that, is that, uh-huh. yeah, is that how it's working in your end? Oh yeah. Here. Um, I mean, there are gas stations that have it on their signs. Um, my vape store carries it now. Um, it's, it's almost everywhere. It's been interesting because, um, like my mother, uh, was a teacher and very, uh, anti-drugs, anti-drinking, um, and all that. But she, uh, is a big fan of the CBD. And I feel like it's kind of opened people's minds to be a little bit more accepting of like actual like marijuana with THC. Now that they're seeing like, oh, this is from the same plant, but you know, it's not, I don't know. I, the, the fear of that is all, um, I feel like pushed, uh, I don't know, through like propaganda a while ago and everyone's still just scared of dope or we're coming out of, we're, we're coming out of the, uh, you know, the, the war on drugs, um, from the 1960s and the Nixon era, I think. And people are waking up to, uh, some of the benefits. I mean, at least in my experience, there, there seems to be a real push for psychedelics at the moment. Uh, not, yes. not to go off on a tangent, but since, <laughs> since drugs were a part of your past life. Yes. Yeah. Um, I've seen some, uh, really promising research lately about MDMA and PTSD. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, but that's interesting. Let's tie it back to your experience with the tur- turtle suit then. So you show up in, in custody from the moment that the dog hits on your bag and you have an interaction with the police, I guess you're then, um, taken into custody from that point. Yes. And, yeah. And you show up at the County jail and, and you're sort of processed in this way. And they ask you, mm-hmm. are you happy with your life? Which is, 
you know, uh, sort of a loaded question and clearly you're in jail. So the answer to that is in the negative. Oh, right. So they put a turtle suit on you. Yes. So where do you go from yes. there? What does that feel like for you? Um, humiliating and um, scary. And they put um, me in um, a cell that had a bathroom, but it had to be like opened. Like it would... Like, I would have to, like, bang on the door and get someone to, like, press a button on the outside so I could go inside. But it was just a cell that was, I think the initial one was not padded, but it wasn't, like, uh, just concrete. It was, like, concrete with, like, a thin layer of something. But, um, yeah, just, I, I'm... I don't know. I'm not sure uh, how long I was even in there. Um, I know it was at least overnight. And then um, I was like assessed and then uh, sent back to general population. But um, that time I was, I was still, I was like starting to come off, um, off of the opiates. And so I had like slept a lot and was out of it. Mm-hmm. Do you recall what the the assessment was like? I guess it sounds like for a short period you were under observation, uh, suicide watch, as they say. Yes, yeah. Um, I don't remember what the questions were, but the assessment is um, infuriatingly uh, just, it's nothing. It's like three or four questions. And then, like, they decide if they think you're a risk or not. Mm -hmm. And And I don't know. They there were between like I don't know six and eight people that they would have on suicide watch at the same time, and then um, someone would just like come around, uh, and I think it was only like they were only there like twice a week. So if you got there, I don't know, on a on a Wednesday and they weren't coming till you know Saturday or Sunday, you were just screwed. So w- describe the institution that you were initially at was was that where you stayed for the large part of your of your um experience before being transferred to the women's facility or what was that it's, facility like? Yeah. Well, it um a lot of um I don't know. It's it's all so much. Sorry. No, that's okay. Are you feeling okay to, to keep talking with me or do you want to take a little break? Oh, no, no. Um, I'm fine. Just so much. There was so much that happened. Mm-hmm. But um, it's the place that I was at is a relatively uh, busy county jail. There's around like, I think, 100-ish women uh, there in the women's block. And it's kind of, it's like the jails that like you see on TV um, with two different levels. And then there were, um, four different big, um, cells that they call eight mans that fit eight women, but normally they'd have, um, at least 10 with two of them being on, like they call them boats, uh, on the floor. And, um, I mean, it sucked. It was awful, but my, uh, mom took really good care of me. So I had commissary, um, every week and that makes makes a world a difference just describe and for anyone that doesn't know what commissary is what is that yes commissary is um christmas uh that comes once a week and it's where you get um like food and snacks like 
ramen noodles or like a gray t-shirt and um, hygiene item items <laughs> hygiene items um, like um, I don't know shampoo conditioner deodorant and that kind of stuff and um, if you like I would say the majority of people uh, if looking at like everyone I would say on the average spend maybe like ten twenty dollars a week but most people don't have any um any money on there at all and then there's a good amount that just get like twenty ten to twenty dollars a week and then my mom took like fantastic care of me so i had like fifty or sixty dollars a week and what would you buy with that not drugs on the inside i hope well um i don't know i guess once you kind of start hustling it's hard to hard to stop and uh, I would get a lot of uh, ramen noodles because those you can slide under the door. <laughs> and then um, that's something also that like, I don't know, if, if someone new comes in, it's like sick or whatever, like we can just throw them a noodle and it's not that big of a loss. Um, but I would get uh, like you could get soda and I would normally get like six or eight uh just like 20 ounce bottles and um oh there were uh there were these gift packages that your family can order from the outside and um then like it gets delivered to you and that's where i would get most of my ramen noodles because i remember i'd get like 30 at a time but um that and candy and chips but a lot of the stuff I got wasn't necessarily stuff that I wanted. But what, um, there's kind of this, like, I don't know, like, <laughs> commissary black market. Like, I don't know. I don't even, I don't know what to call yeah, that, it. Yeah, that makes sense. But, yeah, like, you know, like, someone comes in and they're new. And, like, okay, so just, like, let's say, like, I get arrested tonight and I get back to the county jail or whatever. Um, I could go to someone and say, like, you know, my mom's putting money on my books. Like, here you can see it. I'm going to order um, two Cokes. Will you give me one right now? And then I give them two when I get my commissary. Right. So it's like a trade. And then they call it, like, two for wanting. So, Interesting. I, I asked you a loaded question, and I should maybe apologize to suggest that you were uh, that you were you know dealing inside once there. But once a hustler, always a hustler. It sounds like. Oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Just more like I don't know. Always trying to. I'm, I don't know. I don't even know how to describe it. Like now. Well, you're you're you know, you're describing being in you're in a tough situation. You're trying to make the best of it, right. and you know if it means having to negotiate with some cans of soda or ramen noodles, then so be yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. And actually, um, like I feel like honestly, the main reason I did it. Um, there, uh, I'm gonna. Yeah, we're gonna call her by her actual name. Uh, I met a girl named Trina who um, we have the same birthday, and she's, I don't know, just amazing, a beautiful, beautiful person. And um, she didn't have any support from family. So by me, too, for wanting stuff, I was able to support me and her. And, like, a lot, you know, uh, like, I don't know. I was always really generous if, if someone, like, needed something, if that makes sense. Like... I don't know. 
Well, is there is there anything to be said about that? I'm just wondering back to your companion uh, who you were arrested with. Um, you know, is it, I'm kind of just wondering in my in the back of my mind if this person that you were interacting with, uh, who was like a brother to you, if if there was, I mean, well, I. I I guess I don't know what I'm asking. I wonder if, if you were, if you, in my experience, when I talk to women who are involved with the justice system, there's always sort of a man in the story behind it. You know, it's the public perception is that women, you know, don't themselves get in trouble. It's always, you know, because of a man, so to speak. Can you provide, shed any, any light on that? Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, we are going to call uh, the childhood friend, Nick, and he did not get arrested with me. He wasn't um, with me at the time. I was with a different um, friend we'll call Josh. And Josh and I got arrested uh, on the same charges. And um, he was there, I think, as long as long as I was. He was already, he had a different case that was pending but whenever I signed my plea agreement, um, I said that the only way that I was willing to plead guilty was if they dropped uh, the charges against him. Because, like, I had invested the money in this stuff. Um, it was, it, like, it was on my, I don't know. It's frustrating because I pled guilty to conspiracy to deal drugs that there was never a conspiracy for me uh, to deal. But there was certainly no conspiracy for him. So, um, I didn't want him to have to do time that it just, I don't know. It wouldn't do any good for both of us to do it. And I'm not, I don't know. It was your, your, your decision to, to agree to plead was in part to save uh, a friend. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Who, who happened to be a man as well. Yeah. And, you know, so I, I, I interrupted you. You were kind of talking about putting others' needs first a little bit with your friend uh, Trina. Yes. Or helping her at least while in custody. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's I, – I, there are maybe three or four women I was in there with like at one time that come from a similar background, I guess. And – um like it's rare for, you know, not, there were no other substitute teachers. Uh, so I just was able to see my privilege and, um, I don't know. I, I'm sure some people would not, would not help others, but like I was being like, especially spoiled. Like I just had a lot. And so I can't imagine not not sharing it and helping other people. Mm -hmm. You describe this sense of gratitude, you know, looking at, at your circumstances and uh, those of friends who now are unfortunate and, and find themselves in prison and you're recognizing your own privilege uh, at the moment, um, you know, in, in terms of things afforded to you just from birth, you know, having a mom that was there to support you while facing charges at court and, you know, having, money for commissary. Um, I wonder how much of that sense of gratitude and awareness you had before the justice system, or is that something that, that this experience has, uh, has afforded you? I would say, well, okay. After I was first, um, arrested, I was out. Um, my mom had bailed me out and then, um, I ended up relapsing and, 
um, missing court. And so I was staying um, just like at different people's houses. And I'm not in the little city I grew up in, but in one that's slightly bigger. And um, at that point, I knew that I was going to prison and the charge was still, I think, an A felony at that time. So I... I almost, I wasn't sure if I really even uh, wanted to continue living, but I was staying at just, I don't know, with people that were on all kinds of drugs and then seeing um, what's just really baffling to me, seeing like families, like a father who sells and uses drugs and then his daughter who lives a couple houses down who sells and uses drugs and um just seeing how much it it runs in families um i saw that you know in the short i'd say like maybe two or three weeks uh before i got in but um i don't know my gratitude grew the longer i was in there <laughs> at the at the moment looking back um any regrets? Um, well, uh, there, <laughs> there's actually a lot, but, um, I don't know if, if you don't mind if I skip to the, uh, the, I don't know, the big part. Uh, yeah. I, I, I feel like we're just winding up for the juicy stuff. <laughs> yeah. Um, by all means you share what, whatever you're willing. I I've got a, a list of things that I'm wanting to hit here. So, but you, you, you direct me as you like. All right. So, um, after I was, um, in the county jail for a couple months. Um, I was doing fine. Uh, I mean, I don't know. I, I was doing as good as possible. I wasn't having like, I don't know, any, no behavior issues and uh, that kind of stuff. And um, when I was outside, I was prescribed a um, sleeping medication called, I think it's actually an antipsychotic medication, but I was prescribed it for insomnia and I would take it to sleep. And the first few months I was in there, they didn't approve that medication. And then um, at some point they did approve it. And so once they did approve it, I was given, um, I think it's the highest dose of the, of the medicine, that, of the trazodone that they give. And they would give it to me at seven o'clock at night. And so when I was at home, I would take it like at 10 o'clock and then be in bed at 10.30 and then asleep by 11. But in the county jail, I would take it and then go up to a room with nine other women who have the, you know, with the TV on and the lights on and they're dancing and being loud and silly and just, you know, it made sleeping uh, really difficult. And so um, I don't think it took that long. Um, within, I'd say about a week, um, the not sleeping along with the trazodone, um, which of course I had no idea the trazodone had anything to do with it at the time, but, um, I started having, uh, like auditory hallucinations and, uh, I would like think there were like weird messages in the TV. And like, I thought I would hear stuff like through the phone that wasn't, um, necessarily real. And so I guess I was behaving, um, just kind of weird and like paranoid because I wasn't, I wasn't like going to be really open about 
about what was going on. And I mean, I didn't even really know what was going on myself. Um, but there was a girl who, um, she had been in the county jail, like the longest out of anyone. And she was there on like a big murder case. And she, um, I don't know. I hate to say like, like to say someone was jealous of you, but she was, she had a lot of commissary. And so then when I got there, I was getting attention she had gotten. And so she wasn't my biggest fan. And, um, I'm not sure what she told the guards, but like that I was being weird and they're worried about me or whatever. And, um, mm -hmm. sorry, I need to take a drink of water. Yeah. Take, yeah. Take your time. Okay. Um, so she told the guards about my weird behavior. And so in response, they take me up front and take away all of my commissary. They take away, um, the last thing I remember looking at were, um, pictures that my mom and brother had sent me from a cruise <laughs> they were on and, um, like looking at those pictures and then they took that away too in my Bible and, uh, literally everything. And then I was put back in the turtle suit. And, um, I think the first night I was given a mat and a blanket, but then they come and take it away at like 6am. And so back into solitary. And then that is, um, I was there for three months. So you're, you're describing going into County jail, not all that content with your circumstances as they are. And they ask you, how do you like your circumstances? And you say, I, I don't love them. So they put you in a turtle suit mm -hmm. and then things you, you kind of get with the routine. You, you're, you're, you, you're familiar with the regimen, so to speak. And, um, eventually they come back to give you the prescription that you ostensibly need or that you were using in the community before you were in custody, but they don't give it to you as, as you're used to or as prescribed. So you start to act peculiarly because of the regimen that they're put that, that, that they've put you in They're They're giving you pills at a time that you're not used to taking them. So consequently you're acting a little bit differently than you would be at home. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, and so I guess I'm, I'm hearing that this conversation about mental health, I mean, it, it, I mean, do you, do you think that your needs were being met your mental health needs were being oh met? Oh my God. No, no, not at all. Like before I was given a uh, put back on the trazodone, um, I mean, I was doing fine, but, um, I think cause I, now I know that it's actually, um, like, it's a very, very known that trazodone causes hallucinations. And so, um, you know, it's well known, but, but I guess they don't know that or they simply just don't care, I think. And um, I mean, I wrote in, in a, a paper recently, um, you know, if someone goes to the hospital and says they're suicidal, um, they're not going to take everything from them and put them into an environment that's going to make them more suicidal or at least um, into a, a, a psychosis um, because the isolation that they do, you know, um, I don't know. I don't know if you have, you know, perfect mental health, but you could be put in um, in that same cell and within 
you know, eight to 10 hours, you would probably start hallucinating. So I don't think that uh, helps anyone's mental health needs. No, it, it sounds like it's exasperating it. If yeah. anything, you, you're more likely to come out of prison with mental yes. health concerns than going into mm-hmm. it. Yes, yeah. And 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 yet, you know, you're still able to, I mean, you're describing yourself in a way that's rather resilient. You're referring to, you know, the sense of gratitude that's come as a result of having to spend time in custody and, and uh, you know, and, and recognizing the privilege um, that, that's been afforded to you. How do you reconcile that discrepancy? A lot of anger. Um, I have PTSD uh, for sure. Um, I'm in a lot of physical pain from the three months. So like whenever, I don't know, whenever I'm hurting, it, it, I get frustrated and angry. And I'm really, um, I don't know, it, it has me very motivated. Um, I'm uh, graduating with my second associate's degree in criminal justice. Um, oh my goodness, this in 10 days. Uh, I'm glad I'm glad you brought that up. I was so impressed to read uh, in the short blurb that you sent me your, um, you know, your ambition towards education. And it sounds like if I understand correctly, you feel the need to have those credentials before anyone might take you seriously. Yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah, especially like with my felonies and um, being an addict. And there's just like the way at least the way that the mental health in this particular county jail is run is unacceptable. It is torture. It is, um, you know, just it's mind blowing uh, to me. It's still, you know, almost hard to believe like that it's possible for them to put you in that kind of situation and just you get like stuck in it, mm-hmm. I guess. Mm-hmm. Have you had other dealings with the justice system or was this the only uh, offense that's on a record sort of? Oh, it's the so only one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And is there, is there a record? Are you having to deal with, um, you know, this, this sentence carrying on with you in your life? Um, I do have a record, but I haven't tried to do anything that um, like it would affect me in. Um, I've been going to school and then I was uh, delivering pizza. And then um, whenever uh, my boyfriend and I had COVID at the beginning uh, of this year, um, I ended up having a lot of success on my Etsy store. And so I haven't been back to delivering pizza um, since. So you've really taken this... um this, I mean, this is a true story of redemption, personal uh, growth, it sounds like. I mean, you've, you've come from it. I mean, some might read this story as someone struggling with addiction and, you know, life circumstances that were unfavorable prior to their encounter with the justice system. And as a result, um, you know, having a, having a perspective in life and, and a, a sense of where you don't want your life to go in future. So it, you know, it, it sounds like personally, you've really turned this into a positive. Yes, yes, yes. Um, I think, um, the isolation experience is either going to make you or break you. And it's 
some people, once they go in there and their psychosis starts, they don't ever come out of it. So I'm um, grateful that I was able to come out of it. And I feel like it's my responsibility to not let it continue happening. And um, I don't know, like they're just, there, there needs to be like some kind of like regulation and rules. And I mean, cause what I went through in those three months is, is like the big, I guess the biggest uh, story, the, the most, it, it's the biggest, it, it, the most impactful and eye opening yeah. uh, because I, I gather you probably had no experience with people on the inside prior to ending up there yourself. No, no, not at all. Yeah. And anyone, anyone that has a keen interest in, um, in prisons and the justice system, like I do knows that there's a lot of invisibility here. I mean, the walls of the prison are uh, as much to keep people out as they are to keep people in. Yes. So how do you, how do you um, suggest the, you know, the solutions moving forward for reform in making this invisible problem visible? There needs to be a bridge between the mental health system and which I mean is barely a system itself, but um, just mental health knowledge and, and uh, education needs to be bridged with the criminal justice justice system. Because I mean, from the get, from when the police arrive, they are most of the time entering a situation that has mental health involved, but they're dealing with it in a not a de-escalation type of way in a more like escalating uh, type of stuff. And like, I don't know, there needs to be more training and understanding about mental health and uh, the way they do isolation. And there's like, it's just like small, simple things that would have made my isolation, uh, I don't know, like easier to handle. Like the biggest thing is having like a book or a Bible. And once I was given a Bible after it was in my third month and um, reading the Bible actually helped me uh, get back to, to reality a bit. And um, so things like reading material to keep you from going crazy and um, I don't know, a toothbrush and toothpaste and um, a cup for water, a mattress, a blanket. I mean, I think even that, as long as there's a book, if you're in isolation, you know, that might, that might not be, or that would, I don't know, that could be, um, more appropriate than, uh, just mm-hmm. absolutely nothing. I think it's really interesting. You know, you talk about the police and in context of some of the news, uh, the world is hearing out of the States and all around the world, really, um, you know, the police are, I like that term you use de-escalating and I, I relate it to your story of being in County jail. I mean, this is, this is not a, an instance of the, of the guards in the jail de-escalating when they ask how you're feeling and responding with a turtle suit. It seems similarly to the way the police are interacting on the street is they're coming, they're approaching the situation with a a lens based on risk. And so you as a person who might be feeling 
down, who might be experiencing, you know, suicidal ideation or self-harm, I mean, you're in that sense, a liability to them. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, I don't know. I, I don't know. I want to talk for a bit about, um, the actual, the stuff that happened during the three months that I was in uh, isolation. Let's hear. So it was a, a total, you were in for 90 days, uh, in a padded room with it or tell us about um, that. It wasn't, uh, no, I was only in the padded room for the first 24 hours, um, several, like mu- several months before the three month period. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, I was in a concrete cell with a metal bunk, a metal toilet and sink and a metal, uh, desk with, and my turtle suit. And that is it. And, um, I was allowed, they would let, they would take me to shower, um, three times a week. And that was also the only time I was allowed to brush my teeth. Um, when I would ask to brush it during the day, um, every once in a while, a guard might let me, um, they'd like bring me a toothbrush and toothpaste and then come take it. But, um, not very often. And, um, they come around, uh, around like 11 o'clock at night and give you a mattress and a blanket and then they come around and take it at like 5 or 6 a.m and um one night after i was in there i'd say sometime in the first month um i had become almost like primal i guess and like the mattress and blanket was all that i had and so i didn't want to give it up and so I was like holding on to it and they had to like physically take it from me. And then after that, I had no mattress or blanket the rest of the time. Wow. Yeah. How, how would you describe that? I mean, again, this is not, this is not conducive to you feeling well. Right. Um, torture. Um, I already have um, lupus and, um, just degenerative disease and issues, you know, where a doctor would prescribe me the strongest opiates there are. And so to be sleeping on metal and concrete for months, um, is just awful on my joints. Like my shoulders pop when I, you know, raise them and just, I don't know, a lot of soreness and being in there, it's, I don't know, I guess, like, I got used to the pain, kind of. Mm-hmm. Hmm. I, uh, I gather there hasn't been many folks that you've talked to about your experience. Um, has there been any instances where you've spoken out about, uh, when, when we corresponded a little bit on Reddit, you said, you know, you wanted to go public, and so this is maybe your big debut, um, is, is there any, um, other instances where you've spoken about your experience? Um, no, no. Yeah, no. Um, I have, you know, a lot of my close friends, my family, um, of course I've talked to all of them about it, but, um, no, not publicly at all. I, one, one of the observations that I've made uh, about the justice system is that 
they, you know, there, there's a tendency to want to try to rehabilitate. I mean, there's this um, juxtaposition between rehabilitation on the one hand and punishment on the other hand. Mm-hmm. How do you how do you make sense of those two things? Do, do those two things coexist for, in your experience, or um, is it one or the other? What what is your take? I think that um, the county jail is almost um, completely punishment. Um, very, very, very little rehabilitation goes on there. Um, there's a lot of uh, people talking uh, about, you know, what crimes they're going to do when they get out, <laughs> like, and just criminals like being together and, um, you know, lo- like learning how to be a better criminal almost. Um, but when it comes to um, the prison that I was in, um, there's a lot more options for rehabilitation there. I'm uh, like, I don't know. I'm a lot more, I don't know. I can, I can tolerate the, the prisons here, at least my experience in the women's prison, um, a million times more than the county jail. Earlier, you mentioned PTSD. What is that stemming from? All right. So, uh, okay. Yeah. The first, um, really, I mean, it, it, just them opening the hatch to, give you your tray and then them slamming it, um, is kind of traumatic in itself. Um, and, uh, there was one day where, so okay, I, um, I did pageants when I was younger and like public speaking. And so in my delusionalness, I guess I would like, I don't know, sit and try and be like a perfect human posture just weird (laughs) but um I was sitting at the desk and my tray was up on this shelf next to the door and like most of the guards would just come in and get the tray and it was a guard I didn't know and I have no idea why I did this I honest I, I don't know what was going on in my mind but I just, he, he was like yelling at me um, to bring him my tray and I like wouldn't respond. And I was just like sitting there with my legs crossed and I just was like frozen and couldn't move. And like he kept yelling at me and then other people came and then they opened the door and were telling me to come out of my cell. And I still, I was like frozen. And so they shot me in the foot with a pepper ball. And yeah, I, it exploded. And then the, like, like tear gas, I'm not, I assume that's what it is, um, came um, up through the room and I put my um, turtle suit like over my head and just like sat down in the middle of the floor. And then after it uh, cleared, um, they came in the cell and put me on the ground and, um, cuff me and then put me in um, uh, at this restraint chair that um, that helped with your posture no doubt. Oh God it, it about uh, like probably I'm sure a lot of people have a lot of dislocations uh, in their joints from from that chair but is that what led led to the 90 days then or is this a, a result of you being in the isolation cell for 90 days. Yeah, it was a result of uh, being in there um, because after I was in there for um, a couple weeks, 
Like, I got to the point where I was under the impression that I was in, like, some kind of, like, weird experiment. And I would try and, like, work out a lot during the day and sleep and eat. And um, I don't know. I felt very, like, robotic. Um, and just I got further uh, from reality. And so I'm not, I don't know, I was having some kind of, like, break and just wouldn't respond to them. And, like, it's just crazy because I was no threat. Like, they just, you have to do what they say or they get really mad. Yeah, I, I mean, you're, you're, it's, I really like that you use the term experiment there. And it makes me think of the Stanford prison experiment uh, for anyone that may or may not be familiar with that it describes how ordinarily good people can do extraordinarily evil things. And yes. so from an individual that, you know, has spent time inside, you've, you've, you're describing this austere experience of being in a concrete cell and, you know, ostensibly not feeling so well as a result of it. And then it seems to get worse when, when, because of your, what you're describing as sort of a catatonic state, you then don't comply immediately, which results in further escalation. Yes, yeah. Um, it's really interesting um, that you mentioned the Stanford uh, experiment. It's um, There were female guards who I could tell were very um, upset about the way I was being treated, mm -hmm. but they still didn't stop. Um, because I think some of the, I don't know, like some of the male guards would like to get me riled up, like would slam my um, like food door really hard or throw my lunch at me and um, or just like yelling at me, like crazy mean voice to wake me up to make sure I'm alive when other um, others weren't as mean. And so it's, I, I, I choose to believe that they don't know the harm that they were doing because otherwise I can't rationalize how they could be okay doing that. Just leaving, um, someone in there so long. Yeah. And, um, the reason that I ended up being in there so long, um, they come and, uh, evaluate you, they're supposed to come twice a week, but I didn't see anyone for at least like the first like three weeks. And then by the time I did, I was, you know, I thought I was in uh, experiment and um, I don't, you know, know what I said to the questions, um, but I was never allowed out until finally my um, attorney had a, um, like he filed a motion for me to be evaluated to see if I was competent um, to stand trial. And they brought a psychiatrist in um, who evaluated me. And then the next day I got sent back to general population. This was all while you were, this is all pre-trial custody that you're describing. Yes. Yes. So this is, so to be clear, you've been charged with a, with an offense um, related to drugs which we've learned now as a backstory is because you're addicted to drugs yourself. Yes. And you're placed into an environment that seems to make that, that is not at all supportive of your 
recovery from addiction. It seems to be kind of cold and austere. And um, this is while you're waiting to be proven guilty? Yes. Yeah. And um, I don't know. I guess, So this, um, the next big event, the la- I mean, the last big event in solitary, um, that is, this is what's really difficult for me. And um, seeing, uh, I don't know, after what happened to George Floyd, like, even like a week later, my boyfriend was like concerned because I wasn't back to normal. But, uh, okay, so at some point after I didn't hand them my tray, uh, there was a separate day where I was I don't know why. I think it's because the person next to me was being really, really loud, but I was angry and I threw my tray inside of my cell. But like I live in there and I have nowhere else like to be. So I immediately cleaned it up. And um, but anyway, after that, I was only given a sack lunch. And um, so this is, I don't know, after a couple weeks after the pepper ball. Um I'm eating my sack lunch and I had um, a brownie and my juice box left. And um, like I'd already said, I'd become really like primal and possessive. And um, so this guard that really liked picking on me um, came by and was like demanding I give him my trash. And uh, he opened the cell door and... (laughs) I threw my juice box at him, which, um, I don't know. Okay, so he uh, did not like that and um, immediately uh, grabbed me, threw me onto the metal bunk, um, got on my back, put his um, arm down on my head. My head was, my ear was down on the metal bunk. And um, his arm was on my other ear, like just pressing it into the bunk. And so, um, I don't know, something popped, something in my ears. I don't know. I, I think I might have maybe broken a bone in my face, a small one, because I, I had a giant black eye and um, a lot of swelling uh, after that. But um, I don't know. After he more people came in and they got me cuffed and then put me back in the chair. And, um, the next morning, uh, I am charged with an assault on a public law enforcement officer. Wow. So while you're standing, while you're in pre-trial custody, you're then charged with additional charges for basically not, not complying with direction and, and, uh, and throwing a juice box. Yes. Yep. Charged with an assault for a juice box. And now with the knowledge that I know, I am a hundred percent not guilty of that crime. I didn't have the mens rea. I didn't have, um, knowledge of what was right and wrong. I didn't know that it was wrong to throw my juice box in that moment. Like, I didn't even know I was a human. <laughs> um, and, I mean, it's, I, I don't know. I Like, it's weird to, to think about, because when you think about someone being not guilty, um, you know, by mental health, uh, 
I don't know. It seems really hard. Of insanity. Yes. Yeah. Um, you know, it's something I don't know. It's just very accurate uh, to that particular circumstance. Um, because once someone's in isolation for several months, like they, how can they, they can't commit a crime mentally. Like they don't know. I mean, you're, you're describing a set of circumstances that's conducive to lashing out and to becoming primal as you describe. And so it's no wonder, I mean, you, you, you put I'm trying to think of an analogy that would, that would appropriately package this up. Um, but I, I asked originally, you know, where this PTSD comes from. And uh, clearly, you know, it's, it's so evident to me that, you know, you've, you've had it, you've experienced a trauma and um, a large part of that comes from your time in custody. It sounds like pre-trial custody uh, where you hadn't even been convicted of anything wrong at that time. Yes. Yeah, definitely. Um, the juice box incident is, the biggest uh, cause of trauma. And that's like, it was just particularly difficult um, seeing George Floyd because I know what it feels like, like to be in that position. I was on metal, not concrete. Metal is probably better actually, but, but still. And, and for me, he was maybe pressing my head that hard for, you know, a minute but it still felt, I don't know, like forever. Just that use of force is, um, there's no excuse for it. We, we spoke earlier of, uh, gender. Um, uh, but obviously when we're talking about George Floyd, the case is so, um, is in a, it's just so tied to the idea of race. Um, can, can you share anything about your, anything more? I mean, do you identify as a racialized person or maybe can you share your age? Um, yeah. Uh, any, yeah. Any details um, about you personally? Yeah. I um, am 33 and um, I am white. My family is white. Um, growing up, my parents were both teachers. And so I never had, I don't know, everybody was just human. And then, like, as I grew up, you know, you learn about racism and just history in general. And um, I don't know. It's hard for me to understand how someone can think that another human being is um, less, less than them, I guess. And then, like, I don't know. I have my um, DNA from... 23 of me, 23 and me. And you know, the tiniest part of me is African-American. That's like a lot of stuff starts from, but, um, I think that the war on drugs, they tried to criminalize being an African-American almost. And, um, the, they are stuck in this prison school to prison pipeline and um just being african-american makes you so much more likely to get stuck in that but i don't know like i i definitely i think there uh there's a there's a lot of um issues around race um 
here that need to be addressed. But what um, I am uh, focused on fighting for is just uh, more of, you know, the mental health considerations, I guess, um, for all races, for everybody, because that doesn't doesn't discriminate. Mm -hmm. I want to segue from your time in custody to to the community. But before I do that, um, before we chat about, you know, move on, I want to linger for a second more about this, uh, this um, discrepancy, or how do you make sense of the paradox, you know, that is, um, jail, if it is, if there is any element of rehabilitation, you know, how do you make sense of the fact that you've come out of jail with PTSD? (laughs) Um, You know, honestly, I think that, you know, even it, without the uh, the turtle suit and suicide stuff, just the way an arrest is in general um, is traumatic. And so the fear of uh, the police is totally understandable. Um, they're just so, there's so much aggression. Um, and I feel like, and that's, you know, very evident in the county jails um, because they are supervised and ran um, by county officials. And so getting to the actual um, women's prison, uh, the guards that are there are more, I don't know, more interested in rehabilitation. Like the guards in the county jail give, you know, zero care about, about, well, I I don't know, not all of them. It's just that your experience is more like county jails about processing and getting you to where you need to go. And then state prisons more about uh, trying to actually, you know, resolve or Mm. work on, on problems. I really like what you said about, you know, the police um, coming with aggression and, you know, you're just, you're, you're an empathetic, uh, person being able to put yourself in their shoes in that way. Can you shed a bit more light on how you imagine the guards might've been? I mean, this guard in particular that with the juice box incident, how do you make sense of the experience of, of correctional officers in that situation? I mean, you're arguably in a toxic environment, but you have a date that you're, that you're going to leave at the end of your sentence, you get to leave. These guards are working and living there their whole career. How do you make sense of that toxicity taking on their perspective? I think that, um, a big issue, at least as far as, I don't know. Okay. In the County jails, um, around here that I know of, most, um, to be an actual officer, they want you to be a CO first. So it's kind of, at least in this city, a stepping stone to being on patrol. And so most of the guards, um, are younger and, um, at least in my experience, there, there are definitely some that it is their career and that's, you know, what they've been doing for a long time and where they intend on staying. Um, But the majority of the guards are um, very young and more interested in um, becoming an actual police officer. I see. Making a name for themselves Mm -hmm. in a way. 
Mm, yes. Yeah. So, um, do you have any insight on on how they can demonstrate their performance in that direction of wanting to become a cop? What does a guard have to do to, in your view, uh, sort of demonstrate or perform their job well so they can move on more quickly? Well, I um so um education is something uh you know with my parents both being teachers I've always you know, just how have an appreciation for and it is truly baffling to me that um just law enforcement in general is given so much power without the education to back up that power and like lawyers and doctors are kind of like they're they're the two that i can think of when you think about people who have like major control over your life um, or death. And, you know, they have to go to school for years and years and years. And um, I don't know. And see, like, it's, I don't know if that's even possible, but I think like it, I don't know. There just needs to be more education about um, how to deal with mental health issues and, um, a focus on de-escalation of um, like violence and anger instead of um, inciting violence and anger. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I honestly, I think it would be beneficial um, if correction officers had to sit in a cell for an hour and and or like I don't know, sit in a cell and you know eat a tray or something and just. So there needs to be more um, like understanding that, you know, they're just, hu- they're both humans on both sides, but um, I don't know, neither side really understands each other. Well, you, on the contrary, sound like you have a pretty good perspective on, on being able to imagine, you know, the the other uh, being able to put your feet in the shoes of of the of the guards of the correctional officers of police you know and the challenges that they face on the street um, mm-hmm. yeah I, I I guess the next uh, step will be having a, a correctional officer themselves come on and and shed light from their view also yes yeah that would be interesting um, I have a lot of uh, like students uh, in Um, the classes that I take that are, um, like want to be correctional officers. And, um, I mean, I just think it's wonderful because I, I find a lot of hope in the discussion boards and in how, how, um, because in our textbooks, it's so crazy to me because it's basically like the whole system is really, really, really messed up the end. And, um, and just the understanding that um, that these kids and I'm sure some adults, uh, you know, have and like the empathy that they have and what to bring uh, into the system. Mm-hmm. I want to hear all about your education. But before we arrive there, uh, can we segue from prison to the community? Uh, anything else you think we should touch on about lessons learned inside uh, advice uh, for anyone that's looking at to going in who might be listening to this podcast, looking at, you know, a sentence of, of custody? Yes. Um, number one thing uh, would be start saving money. Put aside money so you can take care of yourself um, while you're in there. 
um, once you are in there, um, I would say be very leery with who you trust. And um, I would do not talk about uh, anything with your case um, to anyone else. But um, get, I don't know, get books from the library, stay in books. Um, if you're religious, you know, get in your Bible, stay in your Bible, keep your head uh, uh, as positive as possible, I guess. Because you're facing an environment that's hostile and and um, not conducive to feeling well, it sounds yes, like. Yes, yes, yeah. And I guess also um, understand that uh, the difference between, I mean, it's the difference between the county jail and prison is almost like not comparable. It's uh, so much easier. I'm so sorry. No, that's okay. It sounds uh, like you've got my doorbell. You've got someone at the door. Do you want to pause for a quick sec? Yes. yes sure. Yes. I'll wait here. Alrighty, I will be back. Oh, sorry about that. That's all right. Every uh, everything all right? It's not. Uh, it's not a probation officer. <laughs> <laughs> Thank goodness. No, no, no. Um, just uh, the Amazon person. Um, very rarely do they ring the doorbell, but they decided to this time. We all, we can all relate with Amazon packages these days. So (laughs) if it's okay, Kat, can we segue then from talking about, um, your time inside to the transition into the community? Um, what was that, what was that like? You know, the, the buildup to, to your day of leaving custody and what was it like, um, then, you know, meeting with, a probation officer. It is all um, just so overwhelming. Um, it's a lot. Um, I vividly remember that they release you um, like at like 11, uh, 59 PM. So like you're released the next day technically, but it's really late. And um, my, <laughs> my mom and brother were and I ended up completing a um, a program while I was in the prison that I got a three month time cut. So I got out three months earlier um, than my expected release date, and my mom and brother were out of town. So um, some of my mom's friends from um, church. Well, I mean I've known them too growing up. Some of our friends from church um, came and picked me up and. Uh, we went to a gas station, which was just crazy, like surreal. And um, my mom had packed me a bag of like clothing and like getting to put on, um, I don't know, clothes that aren't gray sweatsuits or khaki uh, pants was, was really something. And getting uh, McDonald's was, because that's all that was open. And we had a three-hour drive in the middle of the night. I see. But um, meeting, I had to meet with my parole officer first, and um, that was really nerve, nerve wracking. Um, but went well, and I, he actually ended up uh, releasing my case over to my probation officer because I guess there's no reason for them both to monitor me. I I think it has to do with like the risk. You are you like as well, and I was pretty like low risk to mm-hmm. reoffend. Right. 
So, so you actually met with a parole officer first and then a probation officer. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And we, I had to, um, I had got my charges in a city that's, um, like 45 minutes away from the County I live in. And so, um, I, I'm gosh, this is like a whole other conversation, um, in itself. But I was able to transfer my probation from one county to a different one. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm not even sure if I could have successfully completed probation in the original county. Because it's, Why? You, it seems it's almost like they set you up to fail. Um, I have uh, friends, I have a, one of my best friends was on probation here and um, she had a drug test that came back for methadone and um, she hadn't, you know, swore she hadn't taken any and uh, they, so they violated her right away and sent her um, to the county jail and then they send the test off to a lab and find out it's negative. Hmm. And so it was just a false positive, which is really, really common. Um, But the reaction to the false positive in that county is jail. So she ended up losing her job. Um, She had uh, like issues, you know, with like getting like her car payment and stuff um, once she got out because you know, they just interrupt, interrupt everything. And, um, for me, I actually, um, went through the exact same thing. And, um, I had a positive for methadone and I mean, I was, <laughs> it was, it was crazy. Like it, it's like my heart dropped and there's so much fear, but at the same time, like I know a lab test isn't going to say, I'm positive because there's no way I haven't taken anything even, you know, near to that. But my probation officer was so understanding and was like, yeah, it's probably a false positive. We'll send it off to the lab, you know, and see and I'll call and let you know. And then I never, you know, I never heard anything about it. Mm. But, um, and here they have, um, I don't know there. It's a lot more expensive and they normally start you on a program where you you have to like call every day and then you have to if it's your day you have to be there by a certain time and if you can't make it or you know like if I, I my concern was like what if i'm on my way there from my little town and my car breaks down and then i don't make it and then i have to go back to jail for that like I was just too scared, and so I was glad I could get mine uh, transferred to a smaller county. What was the reason for the transfer? Just because it was closer to where you were staying? Yeah, because my mom lived there, and that's that's where I was living when I got out. Was back with her, so I was just blessed enough uh, to you know t- to live there, but then to be able to afford to pay to have it transferred because that's. There's sort of two observations that I make that I that I see um, about your time in custody and out of custody. Um, the first is you're describing this sort of sense of being guilty in, until proven innocent. 
Yes. Um, you know, so in the case in custody, you know, you're, you're, you're in jail, even though you haven't gone through court to be proven guilty or convicted of anything yet. And yet still being charged for assaulting due to the circumstances where you are, um, you know, so you're, you're, you're guilty here. And unless you have the money for an attorney and until you can prove yourself innocent, so to speak, likewise with proving, um, that attest, you know, the false positive case, uh, you know, it seems like you're at the, at the beck and call of a lab, or you better hope you've got the money to get your own lab results. If that's even an option, I don't know. The other observation is about being set up for failure. I mean, you're in custody in a prison cell that's the environmental factors make you feel primal and make you feel set up for failure, while at the same time in the community, you risk all these barriers to getting to see your PO, um, you know, get you know, potentially losing your job, unable to make car payments, as in the case of your friend. Um you know what? What is the solution to these to these issues? I mean, how do we resolve the serious problem of being, you know, having to prove your innocence in a justice system that traditionally, you know, you're you're supposed to be innocent until proven guilty? Yeah, I I wish I had a good answer for that. I know it, I I've heard about um, a district attorney uh, in California who is like trying to go about that somewhat by um, letting people uh, bond out like with no pay, but it's simply like that's making, um, you know, like the people that are stealing cars and stuff right. are just like, whenever they get arrested, they're like, haha, okay, take me. Cause you know, you're just going to let me out. And so I don't think um, that like that is, that necessarily sounds good. Um, but my, uh, the solutions that like, I feel like are maybe, uh, possible are with, um, like the aftercare, I guess I can't, I know there's like some uh, text textbook word for, um, you know, when you enter, uh, back into the community, but, um, I Re think there, I think you're referring to reintegration. Yes, yes, yes. That, and, um, I mean, it's a lot because for me, I was able, I was picked up in a nice car by a family that has like nice money and taken to a nice house, slept on a nice bed, had clothes, had my old room, had all my stuff. Uh, you know, most people don't have that. Like a lot of people don't even have anyone to come pick them up <laughs> and um, let alone like a family to go to and... Um, it's hard to find um, halfway houses uh, here, especially I've noticed for women, um, there's a lot, a lot less um, programs, but um, there, I don't know, like, cause I understand the need for accountability and probation and all that, but um, especially just like the fees and how expensive they make it is definitely something that could be addressed um because it's especially when you like they're taking um because most of most people in the system um don't grow up with um a lot of money or privilege and then the way they get money is by illegal activity and then that's the only way they know how to get money and then they get arrested for it and they're in jail 
And then when they get out of jail, like they have to make money legally. But when you do that, you don't make very much. And then part of what you do, I mean, over half of what you do make, they end up taking back. And so how are you to succeed? Mm-hmm. Yeah. With all that? Uh, being set up for failure. Um, you know, I like that, uh, that you said, I, I'm, I'm quoting you here. And it makes me think of another paradox, uh, and maybe this is a nice segue into your education because I want to hear all about those steps moving forward for you. But it sounds like we started this conversation talking about addiction and uh, a black market, an economy, if you will, for drugs. And I wonder how you make sense of the paradox that now seems to be an even bigger economy based on bail bondsmen, probation officers, parole officers, correctional guards, lawyers, judges, the whole court system. Everyone seems to be getting paid on account of having criminals go through the justice system. So this problem seems even wor- you know exasperated even worse when you describe being set up for failure because it points to the troubling rates of recidivism where you kind of in that business model have a bunch of repeat business you have clients mm-hmm. returning all the time how do you make sense of that paradox um i think they uh have the private prison uh industry pays uh I think is responsible for a lot of it. Um, I mean, because they want people um, incarcerated because they make money off of it. And um, I don't know. I mean, I don't know any solution um, for that other than taking, you know, not having them privatized. But it's, I don't know. There's just so many um, people. I mean, it's just insane how many people we have. Uh, incarcerated here but i mean like you said it's because they're making money uh off of that it's like a giant i don't know like circle that that just keeps going and once you're like and especially like once you're in the criminal justice system here it's so so hard to get out of it and it's really like the minority that get out of it not the majority Mm-hmm. When you do, you remember your last day uh, of your sentence. When you once you'd finished your jail term and once you'd finished all meetings with your probation, was there a ceremony to celebrate your <laughs> your uh, completion of the sentence? Um, no, I, I'm when I I can't even uh, remember exactly when I got off of it. Um, it was exciting to be able to leave the state and not have to get uh, permission for that. Towards the end of my probation, um, I was only seeing my probation officer like once every three months. Mm-hmm. And so I'd seen her like a couple months before. And then I saw her a couple weeks before. And then I was off it, but it, there was no, you know, no celebration. <laughs> But mm-hmm. I mean, my family, I don't know. And my boyfriend are, were happy and proud of me. But I mean, I have a whole side of my life with my boyfriend's um, family who aren't quite aware of all this. Mm-hmm. But whenever they do find out, they will still 
be fine because I've been around long enough. Could I propose a, a possible solution? I wonder your opinion of this. Um, I think it's fair to say when you finished your sentence, there was no comment card for you to fill out at the end about your experience in the justice system. <laughs> right. Do you think that that would be useful in any way? And, and if so, what, what do you think those comment cards overall would say? I, I mean, that could be if they were actually, um, you know, listened to and, and looked at, mm-hmm. um, I'd say, uh, in prison, um, I mean, especially like COVID brought out a lot of, um, just kind of like the messed up regulations. Like I have, um, friends who were at the prison I was at and that prison is set up in um, cottages that are um, like just like separate buildings and then they have like just a regular wooden door that opens and shuts and then it locks from the outside and um, there's no air conditioning um, so it gets like really really hot uh, especially in the summer and so everyone leaves their doors open and windows open and with COVID they had them um, in their cells with the doors shut uh, for a couple months and like they have to be manually unlocked. So eventually um, a lot of us on Facebook got the um, fire, I don't know, inspector. Someone finally went there and then they finally like allowed the doors to be unlocked again, but it had to be like a whole big ordeal to get these doors unlocked. <laughs> and um, I don't know. I, I don't know. I feel like I don't understand why like they don't, aren't allowed to have air conditioning. <laughs> like, like, I don't know. What does that hurt <laughs> for them to have it? Cause there's like, a, I don't know. Most of the people in there aren't, you know, the healthiest people. And there's a lot of older people and uh, like people with health issues. And um, that's something that would definitely be on their comment card because those don't get uh, addressed very good at all. Yeah. I just find it so funny. You know, we live in a, in a world where I can't get my car uh, oil changed without getting, you know, a request for feedback, a survey. How did we <laughs> do? And I just think, you know, the irony that is all of these people, the U.S. is by far the world's leader in terms of incarceration. And, um, you know, there's no thought about asking the, the people that matter the most, you know, the people that are going through the system, it, there's a whole business model of telling them how to, how to reform and correcting them, so to speak. Um, but there's no input from the customers themselves. Yeah. 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 And I, th- I mean, honestly, I think it's cause um, they simply, I will say didn't care because I think there are people in the system now that, that do care and are seeing the issues. Mm -hmm. But um, for the longest time, you know, there was, yeah, no care at all about what they think. But isn't care a basic tenant of rehabilitation? Yes, you would. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, essentially, yes, like impossible without it, but that's why so many 
people don't get rehabilitated and are just stuck in this in and out, in and out. You being an exception to the rule, I think, Kat. Yes, a giant exception to the rule. Tell us everything about what you're learning in school and about your accomplishments so far. Well, I started um, out studying uh, psychology and addiction and social work. And um, I was into my last semester um, for social work and in order, I was still on probation at that time. And um, in order to get that degree, you have to do an internship for two semesters. And I, it's like eight hours a day, like at least four days a week. And I just couldn't um, afford to do that. And so I just went ahead and graduated in uh, general studies. And um, then the last year, I um, have been taking more uh, criminal justice classes. I actually, I think I started, yeah, I started criminal justice um, shortly before, um, I think, Breonna Taylor and then George Floyd. And I'm like, why did I pick to study this? Mm-hmm. And there's, there, it's, it's a lot. And so I have so much, um, I'm obsessed with like, lawyers on YouTube. I'm, I watch tons of uh, legal commentary, but I just um, have been learning about um, the criminal justice system. And, you know, it's really fascinating to me. I'm taking a class right now, um, like called ethics in the criminal justice system. And, you know, like I experienced um, a situation where uh, like there was no ethics at all. And it's good to know that um, we're aware of the issues. And um, I mean, one of my books talks about how um, like police officers and prosecutors and judges very, very rarely have repercussions um, for breaking rules or negative actions. And it's not uncommon for someone who speaks up to be punished as opposed to the person they're speaking up about, like whistleblowers um, end up being the ones that are punished. And so that's something, um, it's, it's frustrating to read that because at the end of that chapter, there's no like suggestion on how we can fix this. Just like, Oh, it's a problem. I I think of um, you know maybe you've heard of the what's called the CSI effect. Uh, mm-hmm. There's a there's an influx of there when the show came out for CSI. There was an influx of uh, enrollments into criminal justice courses and and the study of criminology and that sort of thing. Um, earlier in our conversation, you said you know you wish that guards would spend time. Um, you know, eating off of the tray and being in isolation themselves for a little while. And yet here you are with the lived experience, um, you know, going through the motions so that ostensibly you can, you can be the change that you want to see in the world. What, what advice can you give to folks who might be interested in this career path that you're embarking on? Well, I, um, (laughs) I don't even, I'm not quite sure what career path I'm on. Um, 
I, cause I don't know like what ultimate, like, uh, employment that I want to do. I'm kind of almost hoping that my Etsy is successful enough that I can, um, help like with nonprofits and stuff. I, um, uh, I, I, if law school ever becomes remote and I don't have to move for it, um, that's something I'm, I don't know. I, that's what I'm like leaning, uh, leaning towards the most, but I would say, um, you don't have to be in a rush. Like there's nothing wrong with taking your time with your education. And, um, I, well, one thing for me, I was really hung up, um, on my grades, uh, the first couple of years and I'm kind of, I don't know, I guess slightly, um, like obsessive about it. And I ended up graduating with a 3.94 and I got a B in one class, but that one B was devastating. And, um, now looking back at it, like that's ridiculous. I did great. A B is okay. A C is okay. Um, like a passing grade is okay. You know, like, so worry more about learning and taking in the education than grades and that might not ultimately. And getting that colorful life experience, maybe like you, like you yourself had, although I don't think you're endorsing the idea of going inside. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I often wish that it was possible, possible for me to, because I actually like, it's crazy because mentally when I went into that cell, I was a lot more insecure and um, didn't have a lot of self-love and self-confidence. And um, I really struggled being alone and I'm kind of codependent. And the benefits that I got out of um, that trauma um, are, uh, self-confidence. And, um, I actually, it's very odd because I have no, uh, depression at all, which I had a lot before going in. Um, and I don't know if that's just interesting to me, but like, I can't recreate that to help somebody else. <laughs> like mm -hmm. I can't just put someone in a room. Like I, I have no idea because it's basically like being broken to build yourself back up. I was, Totally broke. Yeah, I mean, I, I just love the contradiction. I mean, you're, you're shading with all sorts of color, you know, the traditional archetypal characters that are not black and white. You know, it's not that there are good guys and bad guys. I mean, there are just people. And sometimes, yes. sometimes folks get caught up in troubling times like yourself. And while, you know, you've endured a great deal of trauma in, in your experience and in your own words, um, you know, there is some good, there is some silver lining at the, at the end of this story, it sounds like. Yes. Yes. I think, um, it's important to look for the silver lining and, you know, any and every story, cause that's you know, a reason to keep pushing through. Mm-hmm. Well, I can't think of a better way to wrap up our discussion. I'm so grateful for your generous, um, well, your courage and your generosity in coming on and sharing your personal story. And congratulations on going public, so to speak. If this is your first time coming out and, and speaking out about the problems as you see it, then I'm, uh, I'm delighted to have shared this, this moment with you. 
Thank you. I want to give you the, uh, the last words, um, you know, any future plans that you are looking forward to? Are you amenable to plugging your Etsy store? Where can people check you out? Um, yes, I'll I'll plug my, uh, Etsy store. Um, I'm, I don't know, looking forward to a more normal summer. Yeah. um, You know, getting to be around people and such. Are you all seeing vaccines uh, in Indiana? Oh, um, yes, yes. I got uh, my second one um, the week before last. You're doing way better than us here in Canada. It's been a slow rollout, and I can't wait uh, for borders to open up so we can um, you know, see more of each other's countries. Yes, yes. Yeah, that's one thing that um, I really hate. Because uh, I've, I've only been to Montreal, but um, still, I think Canada's beautiful. And I don't think I can ever go there now. <laughs> I wonder. I, I wonder. Um, yeah. And that's another barrier. <laughs> yeah. Another barrier. But I'm glad that you got to see Montreal, of all places. I love it. It's such a great place. Um, it's dear to my heart and I can't wait to, to be back there even, but I'm, I'm stuck right now in Ontario and in Toronto, which is the hardest hit, uh, for the pandemic in Canada. Are you still, uh, like on lockdown there? We are, we're on lockdown and, uh, you know, I've got, fortunately I've got a vaccine scheduled, but that's only my first. And, um, you know, as I say, we're just, uh, well, well behind the times here, it seems, but brighter days ahead, I'm sure. Yes, hopefully. I'm wishing you the best in your recovery as well. I wonder if the term California sober resonates with you at all. It, it definitely resonates when uh, waiting on the legality. But <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, uh, I heard the term on, uh, I think, Dem- Debbie, Demi, who is it? Debbie Lovato. Am I saying that name correctly? Oh, was yeah, talk- yeah. Talking about it on the Joe Rogan podcast. And I guess that means, what does it mean to you, uh, California sober? Um, as far as what I've heard is um, sober from like all substances except for marijuana. Right. And in your case, I think just uh, the occasional or maybe not so occasional CBD, which yes, uh, yeah. is, is clearly a, a huge improvement um, from the circumstances you described earlier yes. leading, leading into the justice system. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Yeah. There are indefinitely, um, I don't know, another little piece of advice uh, because I was in chronic pain before I was ever put in that cell. And then that cell, I mean, like I can remember laying in the floor, like literally wanting um, my life to end because of the pain that I was in then. And um, I still have, you know, that physical pain a lot sometimes now. But uh, the way I deal with it is to immediately focus on something else. And whether it's physical pain or emotional pain, if you can get in your head and close your eyes and count down from 10 or turn on the TV or get into a book or distract yourself and get away from that mindset and uh, negativity it can be helpful. I'm so glad you said that you're describing, you know, practice of mindfulness. And mm-hmm. um, I understand that there's some science behind actually counting down it, it activates a different part of your brain. I don't know if it's the amygdala, but it is a f- uh, practice that works as well as f- 
making gratitude lists and yes. shifting shifting your mind, you know, from states of depravity and anxiety to ones that focus on just the simple things that you're grateful for, the the feeling of wind in your face or in your case clothing um, yes. that's not gray and and khakis or or a McDonald's at uh, yeah. late late at night uh, being, you know, released from an austere place. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's wonderful. I have this almost childlike appreciation that I still, when I go outside at night and I look up and see the stars, there's like just this overwhelming gratitude that I'm able to look at them. And I can be, you know, the other day, um, I was like washing dishes at the sink and looking outside and I get, I, I often will just kind of stare at something and then get off in my mind. And uh, my boyfriend was like, what are you looking at? And I'm like, just being so grateful. I can look at the outside. He's like, Oh gosh. But, um, yeah. Funny how cannabis uh, has a role in that for some people. They describe, you know, the ability to, 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 to be present and to be content with their, with their, um, circumstances. And, um, you know, I think there's a wider uh, appreciation and waking up that needs to happen about substances as they are. Um, you know, I think there's a lot more harm that comes to responding to drugs than actually contending yes. with them. Yeah, yeah. I listened to uh, your podcast uh, uh, about that and um, decriminalizing. And that's, a, I don't know, definitely a very interesting thought. I'm so glad to hear that. I, I, uh, yeah, I sat down with an old friend who works, uh, exclusively in the world of addiction and, uh, I'm glad that you checked it out and I'm hoping that, um, you know, you'll, you'll be, uh, willing to check out this episode or at least share it among friends. So I'll be sure to, to pass it along. Maybe we can put it in the, uh, Reddit, um, in the subreddit, um, page with your permission uh, yeah, we'll, sh- sure. we'll share it along and see if if this story resonates with anyone else and yeah. and we'll be inviting more uh, folks in so i should highlight um i'll plug myself here if anyone listening is interested at all get in touch rex crimshow at gmail.com and um tell us your story and let's see about you know trying to start a dialogue about solutions how we can address this aggression as you say cat and what we can do to work on de-escalating i think first and foremost we need to have conversations and that starts with maybe a comment card and the ability to share anecdotal experience and and what it's like going through the system yes yes absolutely i'm so delighted uh, to have well, I don't know if I can say we've met, but uh, to be acquainted with you and for you sharing the story, Kent, I want to give you the final word, and I hope that you'll definitely share details about the Etsy store. So let's hear it. Yes. Well, um, my Etsy store is the Cat's Crochet, and Cat is um, K-A-T. Uh, it has been um, really good to get a lot of this off of my chest, and um I hope that if you are someone who has never been inside the criminal justice system and feels so far away from it, that maybe you've gotten some understanding that uh, you know, anyone can um, get caught in it and maybe more understanding at the people who are 
you know, inside the system right now. Thanks, Kat. All the best. Take care of yourself. And uh, I'll be sending you uh, details um, of the show when it's published. Awesome. 